This is the Good Judge Men Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another session of the Good Judgment Podcast. I am Wade Paget, And I'm Tane Kell, and together we will be your hosts. The Good Judgment Podcast is designed for judges, lawyers, and others who are interested in judges and the law and procedure that occurs in a courtroom. Now, our focus is on Georgia law and Georgia judges. We normally address issues dealing with substantive law and procedure, but occasionally we have some other topics that we think might be of interest for judges to consider. For those who have been listening to our podcast, we want to thank you and hope that you'll tell somebody else. And don't forget, folks, if you want to contact us, you can send us an email to goodjudgepod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on the web at goodjudgepod.com. Today's podcast deals with motions for new trial. We're frequently asked to consider motions for new trial following criminal convictions, and we will dedicate this podcast to criminal proceedings. We're not focusing on the death penalty cases as they have totally different rules and time limits. Today, we're looking at motions for new trial in basic felony cases. We cannot predict all the issues that might arise in a particular motion for new trial, but we wanted to touch on topics that frequently arise and the issues that judges are expected to address in most motions for new trial. We recognize that this podcast topic is not one that's probably going to find itself on anyone's top 10 list of most downloaded podcasts. But if any judge or lawyer finds themselves scheduled to participate in a motion for new trial hearing, we want to give everyone a quick reference guide that can help them maneuver this issue. Motions for new trial are seen frequently, and you can rely on this podcast as a go-to guide. That's very true. We are not trying to produce a law review article via podcast, and we're not trying to cover every contingency that might arise in this type of case. Instead, we're going to try to give you a starting point or an overview of the topic. But there are a couple things that judges are expected to do that I'm not sure we always do. Remember, we are posting an outline or similar reference guide on our website, goodjudgepod.com. You can find the outlines there if you did not catch a citation while you were driving or doing other things. Tane, what, what other things do you do when you're listening to a podcast? A lot of times I listen to them when I'm uh, in the shower, uh, when I'm not singing, and, uh, you know, sometimes when I'm mowing the lawn. See, it's just he's, he's a man of many talents. Absolutely. One more preliminary note that we should probably address in every podcast, and Tane will know what I'm talking about with this one. I have a case on appeal involving a motion for new trial and my ruling. I'm going to try my very best to avoid any commentary on that issue once we reach it. Both of us have cases involving all of these podcast topics, probably if we thought about it long enough, and we are never trying to make any statement on a particular case or particular set of facts. Instead, we're focused on the topic and the law relating to that topic, not necessarily facts on any particular cases. But enough with disclaimers. Let's let's talk some motion for new trial law. Yeah. Tane, let's start with looking at the new Uniform Superior Court Rule 41.1, 2, 3, and 4, and which were recently modified in light of that decision in Owens versus the state. Can you discuss, just for those who may not be savvy with the name, what Owens was all about? Sure. I mean, 
quite frankly, there was a fairly egregious fact pattern, and I don't mean in terms of the case itself. I mean the tortured proceedings that got this case uh, to the appellate court was really what uh, seemed to be the focus of the Court of Appeals and the uh, Supreme Court on that case. The main problem was that almost 20 years had elapsed between the time that the case had been heard and a sentence had been entered and the time that the case arrived at the Supreme Court on the motion for new trial. Um, There were a lot of problems along the way, and I won't go into all of those, but basically the end result of what the court said was, it is the duty of the trial court to make sure that the motion for new trial is heard in a timely fashion and to essentially shepherd that process all along the way. The new Uniform Spirit Court Rule 41.1 through 4 have all been modified recently to reinforce that expectation addressed in Owens. As a practical matter, the court is expected to schedule a status conference with counsel no later than 120 days after sentencing. That assumes that a motion for new trial has been filed, I suppose. I'm not really clear. It's not really clear from the rule. It just says you will schedule the status conference. I guess if there's nothing to be heard, like they didn't file a motion for for new trial, you just cancel the thing, but you have to schedule it. Yeah, and I guess the assumption there is if they didn't file a motion for new trial, they likely would have just gone ahead and filed an appeal during that time, and you lose jurisdiction anyway. Exactly. So after that first status conference, the court's then expected to and required to schedule additional status conferences no less than every 180 days thereafter until the motion for new trial is heard and decided. And I think the idea behind that part of the rule is recognizing that probably it's going to take a while to develop a transcript in certain cases, especially ones that are lengthy, and recognizing that in 120 days, it's unlikely that everything may be ready for the motion for new trial to be heard. So the defendant's presence, this is something that is near and dear to my heart, given the pilot project that we've been involved with in Augusta. But a defendant does not have the unqualified right to be present at a motion for new trial hearing. The defendant must be present when that defendant's presence would have offered some sort of testimony that was relevant to the issues presented in the motion. This usually occurs in cases involving a claim of ineffective assistance of counsel. But even in such cases, the right to be present at the hearing is not subject to remand from the appellate court unless that defendant had information that could not be received by the trial court without the defendant's presence. Yeah, Uniform Superior Court Rule 41.1 sets forth who is required to have the defendant present for a motion for new trial when, quote, the defendant's presence is required by law, end quote. And now for the thing that's near and dear to my heart. We have the ability under Uniform Superior Court Rule 9.2 to have the defendant appear at a motion for new trial hearing via video conferencing. The DOC has facilities to make arrangements for such an appearance by video. The DOC has also taken the effort to install video conferencing equipment at every single Georgia prison. You will need to obtain the corresponding equipment to make the thing work at your courthouse. We're going to be doing an entire podcast on these video hearings, and we've made, remember, we, we've talked about it, I think we talked about it last summer, Tane, at the summer conference that we actually showed the equipment and how it might work, maybe a video of it. Right. Regardless, understand that there are rules associated with the using of video conferencing. 
that's going to probably prevent you from just turning on Skype or FaceTime or some other on, on your laptop in a courtroom. That's just not going to work. Well, particularly with people who are confined in the Department of Corrections facilities and you hopefully can't reach them by cell phone. Yeah, well, we'll talk. That's that's another podcast too. Yes, God, we got a lot of podcasts we have to do, Tate. <laughs> the beautiful part of the thing with the DOC is that they've worked through all of those rules that are required under the uniform rules to make that defendant's presence via video constitutionally acceptable. You can allow a defendant to appear from a facility owned and operated by the DOC with no threat of harm to the inmate, to guards, to the public. There's no escape. All of that is handled. There's no CPO. Uh, sorry, court production order. I'm, I think everybody calls it a little bit differently. There's no cost to the sheriff of housing the defendant for a night or two. Stay tuned for a podcast on video hearings in general, and we'll go through this a little more detail. But just understand that the motion for new trial, you may have to have a defendant present. Tane, let's take a minute and discuss how we keep up with pending motion for new trials in our respective offices. How do you how do you do it? And then I'll tell people how I do it. Sure. Well, the first thing that happens is when I do a sentencing now, so when I'm sentencing the defendant who's just been convicted, um, in anticipation that a motion for new trial is going to be filed, I go ahead and tentatively calendar the 120-day status conference. So let me ask you this. As you go to the bench, how do you know that date's available? What, what's the mechanics of how you know that? Sure. So in my, in my office, as soon as I do sentencing, I'm not giving an order at that point in time, scheduling the date, but I go ahead in my office and calendar that date. So I set aside a time when we could hear, have a status conference on a motion for new trial approximately 120 days from the date that I do the sentencing. I do that recognizing that in almost all of the cases that we handle in felony criminal trials, a motion for new trial will be filed usually by trial counsel, uh, immediately before they uh, bail out as uh, the Hang on. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. And then, so once I have that date, um, then we go ahead and schedule the status conference. It goes onto my schedule. We send notice to all of the parties as soon as the motion for new trial is filed. In my office, I keep an Excel spreadsheet of all the convictions following a trial, bench trial, jury trial, whatever. And then my court reporter has access to that Excel spreadsheet, as does my assistant. So my court reporter will add the info on the date that she files the transcript. So I know in a single place without having to go on a case management software, is there a transcript? Did they file the motion? I'm all of that. And I just periodically go back and do it. Now I realize that as a system, that's not ideal, but I periodically go back and do it. And so that I will put on the Excel spreadsheet, for example, the date of conviction. The date of conviction already has a no later than date in the next column. It is smart enough to calculate 120 days out. And so it knows, my assistant knows, I'm going to have to have a hearing in this case at least by here. Court reporter knows her deadline, so she is on the same time getting her transcript done and adding the data on there as to when the, um, when the transcript is filed. And then my Cheryl, my, my staff attorney, she'll send out the notice to everybody with a notice generally to the state that you are going to have to transport this defendant, you know, make arrangements to get the CPO done, or this hearing is going to be conducted via video conference. 
and we put that in that notice that goes out uh, as it goes out. Now, the status conferences have to be on the record, or the court should enter an order memorializing the conference. The defendant does not have to be present for a status conference, and I do not even think about having them participate in that first 120-day status conference. I want to talk to the lawyers. I want to make the transcripts there. I want to make sure the transcript's there if it's not what the plan is. And I want to have a, a sort of more of a game plan in that first status conference as to where we're going. But the rules also allow these status conferences to be, to be conducted by telephone. I don't mind doing that as long as I feel that I have the attention of the person who's on the phone. Yes, sir. Let me go back to one thing you said a few minutes ago, too. You keep a spreadsheet that includes all of those dates, including having the court reporter put in when the transcript is completed and important information. That's a good idea because the rules now require us to do certain reporting on an annual basis that we'll talk about in a few minutes, and that data will already be collected in in one place. The new uniform Superior Court Rule 41.3 includes a provision that is probably worth noting. In my frequent, in my circuit, excuse me, we frequently have cases where retained counsel, this is what Tain was talking about, tries the case and then files a bare bones motion for new trial. Then the retained lawyer promptly seeks to withdraw, thinking that the court will appoint appellate counsel. 41.3 specifically notes that the filing of a motion for, for new trial makes the lawyer who files the motion personally responsible for the cost of the transcript. The rule also indicates that the filing of the motion for new trial acts as a certificate from the lawyer who files it that the he or she has requested the transcript be prepared. The rule also gives the court the ability to discipline an attorney who does not pay for the transcript preparation. In other words, that entire process that you mentioned just a moment ago has been sort of, I don't know what the right word is, obviated. Is that a good word? That's a great word. Thanks. I get a nickel for that from Riverwood High School. Um, that it obviates that whole problem because if you file a motion for new trial, you are on the hook for a transcript, even if it's ultimately determined that the defendant is indigent. If the trial counsel files a motion for new trial, which inevitably they will because they're going to have a, a, a window that they want to make sure that this thing gets filed in, they're personally responsible for that transcript, and they are certified, and they've requested it. Yes, sir. Can I go back to one thing that you were talking about just a minute ago? Sure. Riverwood High School, wasn't that a disciplinary military high school? No, no. No, that's Riverside. <laughs> okay, this all is right. Riverwood. All right. Okay, all right. All right. Okay. Just, just want to make sure. Um. Basic issues in almost every motion for new trial. Why don't you start us off? Sure. Uh, Virtually every motion for new trial includes a couple of basic issues that the court will need to address. First, the sufficiency of the evidence under uh, the really important case and kind of the gold standard for all of this, which is Jackson versus Virginia. Your order will need to include a finding as to whether there was sufficient evidence to support the verdict. I'll occasionally reference some of the facts of the trial in the section of my motion for new trial order, which addresses sufficiency of the evidence. Do you do the same thing, Wade? I do. I, um, I usually try to start off with the who was there for the motion for new trial. Then when did was the trial conducted? What were the charges? What were the outcomes about by the verdict? Then I go through a sufficiency of the evidence argument, um, analysis, I guess, not an argument, analysis at that point in time. The second issue, go ahead. I was just going to say, how much detail do you go into? 
I try to only go into as much detail as I need to express, to express the procedural status of the case. When I go through a Jackson v. Virginia sufficiency of the evidence thing, I really am trying to make sure that I've touched most of the elements, you know, like venue. <laughs> yes, of course. Well, you know, it's, it's one of those, it's, it's, easy, it's easy to say the evidence showed that in Richmond County, Georgia, on thus and so, this defendant did. Mm -hmm. It's easy to overlook it, too. I mean, because that's just kind of awkward phraseology as you're talking to people. And, and it, so anyway, I try to cover all of those things when I'm doing a Jackson v. Virginia sufficiency analysis. Well, now, Wade, let's go to an issue that I know is near and dear to your heart. What is this crazy thing out there that's called the 13th juror standard? So most of you have probably seen a motion for new trial that says it's on the general grounds. And right. that is a term of art, believe it or not. It sounds pretty basic, but it's a term of, it's a term of art that means the judge under 5520 and 5521, that's OCGA 5-5-20 and 5-5-21, they're expected to act as the 13th juror in the case. What in the world does that mean? Well, basically, they afford the trial court that discretion, and it's pretty broad, to sit as a 13th juror and weigh the evidence on the motion for new trial that alleges these grounds. The court's going to review the record, and it has to be, you have to show that it is a, you know, it is different from Jackson v. Virginia. Well, and that's what I was going to ask. Is that a different analysis than what you've already done? Absolutely. And, and we've listed in the outline that people can find where, Tank? Uh, on goodjudgepod.com. That's right. The, the outline's going to be on goodjudgepod.com. But we've put in the outline the cases that almost walk you through that process of you have to express as the trial judge, I know this is different than Jackson v. Virginia. And I'm treating it differently than Jackson v. Virginia. This gives you a chance to say, yeah, yeah, there was evidence on all of those elements, but. And, and that but allows you to grant a new trial where you, I don't know of any other way to say it, if you have a, don't have a good feeling about the verdict, if, if you think that, it, that the witness's credibility was so tainted that no reasonable juror should have relied upon that juror. If you think that things outside the trial got that somehow creeped their way into that jury room, whether it be bias or, or news coverage, and you just technically the, the state checked all that checked all the boxes, that's the Jackson v. Virginia. This is the one that gives you more discretions a little bit broader. Well, Wade, I, I would assume then that that's not an analysis that you'd need to do if it's a bench trial. Um, under the case of Key, K-E-A, versus the state, I guess that's Hawaiian, I recently learned that the court is expected to perform that 13th juror analysis even in a bench trial. And this is that area where I need to be very, very quiet. Can you do the rabbit thing? Be very, very quiet. Yep. Because that case remains on appeal. Well, you learn something new every day, Wade. You do. Failure to conduct a separate analysis under the general grounds or as the 13th juror will result in the case being remanded to the court, the trial court, for, to conduct the required review 
as I recently learned. Well, I've, I've had one of those or two of those remanded to me, too, for not using the appropriate language to show specifically that I conducted that 13th juror analysis. So, you know, it, it does happen, and it's just something everybody needs to be aware of. That's a separate analysis that needs to be included in every case. I kept waiting for you to say, and it happens to the best of us. And it happens to the best of us. I feel much better. <laughs> After ruling on the sufficiency of the evidence, that's Jackson v. Virginia, and then ruling on the general grounds or 13th juror analysis, I then turned to the specific legal or factual issues that might have been raised in that motion for new trial. Do you organize your your orders sort of in that same manner, or do you generally do something else? No, I usually do. I usually do both of those analyses first, uh, making specific headings that this one is the 13th juror analysis, this is the Jackson uh, versus Virginia analysis, and then I go through the various other arguments that are made by counsel, either as to uh, ineffective assistance or sufficiency of the evidence or whatever or those objections might be. that you overruled or exactly. whatever. Exactly. All right, so let's talk about ineffective assistance of counsel. I think you actually handle more of these than I do because our lawyers are so awesome in Augusta, they don't usually have, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but seriously, I think you hear a lot of these. Why don't you sort of take the lead with us on this? Sure. Um, any claim for ineffective assistance of counsel requires a finding by the court that trial counsel's performance was deficient and that such deficiency, and this is important, substantially prejudiced the defense. So it's a two-part um, analysis that has to occur. And the case on that is, a, is an important U.S. Supreme Court case called Strickland versus Washington. The prejudice that must be shown by the defendant, however, is a prejudice that rises to the level that but for the error by trial counsel, there would have been a different result at trial. In, a, in essence, what uh, Strickland says is that because counsel's performance was so deficient, the defendant was essentially deprived of his right to counsel. That's basically what the what the cases have said. You know, we're, we're going to quote some cases here because we have a whole chain of them in our outline that can be found where team at goodjudgepod.com much more prompt on that one um the counsel's errors have to be super, have depth to be so serious that they deprive the defendant of a fair trial which is what you were just saying mm -hmm. this requires a showing that the counsel made errors so serious that counsel was not functioning as the counsel that is guaranteed under the sixth amendment anything short of such a showing is not ineffective assistance of counsel sufficient to warrant a new trial. The courts are going to be expected, the trial courts, expected to analyze any claim deficiency in the counsel's performance from counsel's perspective at the time of trial, as opposed to that beautiful 2020 hindsight that we often get post-trial. The court must indulge in that strong presumption, as it's phrased, that counsel's conduct falls within the wide range of reasonable professional assistance. Trial tactics and strategy, no matter how mistaken in, in hindsight, are almost never adequate grounds for finding that trial counsel to be, was ineffective unless they are so patently unreasonable that no competent attorney would have chosen them. These presumptions must be overcome by clear and convincing evidence if the defendant is to prevail on this claim for ineffective assistance. And that's really important. I mean, the clear and convincing evidence standard is a pretty high bar that we don't see very often in criminal cases. We don't see it hardly in any cases, mm -hmm. to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. 
Issues of trial strategy are not generally going to be sufficient to support a finding of ineffective assistance. Now, there's all kind of things that might be determined to be trial strategy, but why don't you go through those couple or three that the appellate courts have already clearly said absolutely are trial strategy in most cases. Sure, and I'll, I'll note this too. Because it is a fact-dependent determination and because one of the determinations that has to be made is whether something was a trial strategy as opposed to something that was uh, patently ineffective or incompetent as trial counsel, um, in most cases, trial counsel will be called as a witness uh, to testify at the motion for new trial. If, there are not, if they are not called, then frequently it's difficult for the court to make any determination about ineffectiveness because we can't um, make an analysis of those standards we just went over. So I, I just thought I'd throw that in. Yeah, I mean, I think that's we kind of dovetailing on some th- other things we've talked about today. Sometimes our lawyers claim that they have to appear at a habeas case or at a a motion for new trial somewhere else in the state, sometimes here, and they're usually having to defend their effectiveness during some trial or some plea or something else that they may have done in the past. But so tell the folks kind of what kind of things, trial strategy obviously is trial strategy, but there may be some other things that are not as patently obvious qualifies trial strategy. Sure. So for example, failure to make a meritless objection cannot sustain a claim of ineffective assistance of counsel. If it wouldn't have changed the outcome, then it's not going to be something that's going to result in an an ineffective finding. Uh, Deciding which jury charges to request is a matter of trial strategy and cannot support a finding of ineffective assistance unless that strategy was patently unreasonable. The decision as to which defense witnesses to call or what questions to ask on cross-examination are matters of trial strategy and tactics. Tactical errors in that regard will not constitute ineffective assistance of counsel unless no competent attorney would have made the same choice under the circumstances. You know, electing... Sorry. That's all. I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm just... That standard, no competent attorney would have done that. Mm-hmm. I can't. That's a really high standard. It is, and I can't or low imagine as, as you may. And I can't imagine how you would get to that unless you brought an attorney in or a professor in to say and testify as an expert witness that no competent attorney would uh, uh, w- would ever make that determination. So I've never had that claim, uh, and I don't imagine that I will see it very often, nor will any of you. But Electing to forego an objection, for example, during an argument, that that's just not going to be ineffective if your thought process was, you know, I don't want to object in their closing argument, so they won't object in mine. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some cases, real recent cases, a lot of these have Westlaw sites on them, on our outline that we have posted on goodjudgepod.com. So in short, when addressing an issue of ineffective assistance, the judge should look at the thought process of trial counsel as made clear during the time that trial counsel is on the stand during the motion for new trial hearing. The judge should decide whether those alleged errors fall within that wide discretion, wide range of discretion that fall within the umbrella of tactical decisions, and if so, deny the motion. However, yes. Well, there's one thing I want to add right there, Wade. There are cases out there that say 
that just because trial counsel admits on the witness stand during the motion for new trial hearing that they were ineffective does not mean that they were ineffective under the standards for which we are to analyze them. I had a recent case that went up to the appellate courts in which trial counsel had said, you know, I really shouldn't have done some of the things that I did at trial. We really should have won that case. I feel like it was my fault and I feel like I was ineffective. I made an analysis that said, despite his admission to that, I felt like that he simply felt bad for his client at that time and that he was taking the responsibility on himself when it wasn't warranted. I didn't find that his um, performance at the trial was ineffective, and that um, finding was sustained by the Court of Appeals. You know, I've actually seen a, a, an appellate decision that said, although trial counsel's attempting to fall on the sword on this issue, we find blah, blah, blah. So mm-hmm. there's been several of those cases out there. Mm-hmm. So earlier we were talking about um, wh- what you might learn while the trial counsel's on the, the witness stand during that motion for new trial. And if you find that it falls within that tactical decision conversation, that you, you should deny the motion. But if that error or decision is one that no competent attorney would have made and the outcome of the trial would have been different had that decision not been made or that error not been made, the court should look closely at the claim. If upon reflection, the court is convinced that the Strickland standard has been met, the court should actually grant that motion for new trial based upon ineffective assistance of counsel. But I, I have to make a confession. Yes. I've granted a motion for new trial once. Mm-hmm. I made an error. It was 100% an oversight. It was, it was not, it was everybody's fault and nobody's fault, but it didn't matter. It ultimately falls on me. I was doing written jury charges. And we had had a charge conference in which the parties had taken out charges and added charges. But in that process, the staff attorney who was working on those for me deleted presumption of innocence as a charge. The state didn't notice it. The defense didn't notice it. I didn't notice it. They waived all of their objections. I might have charged it sufficiently in a a, a pretrial charge, but I wasn't comfortable with it. And it wasn't any, like I said, it was nobody's fault. It was everybody's fault, but ultimately it was my fault. And I had to grant a motion for new trial and an aggravated assault that I didn't want to grant, but it was 100% just an accident. Sure. And those things do happen as we know. Yeah. Those things can happen. So then even to the best of us, Wade, oh, thank you. So even, is that the second time you've had to say that it today? Is. So After we finish the ineffective assistance, the Strickland, and then the 13th juror analysis, we're now left with those things that are case-specific. And, Tane, we can't guess all of the things that you might have to deal with on a a case-by-case basis. Right. They frequently will be things like uh, uh, decisions about where a trial objection was made and sustained or overruled or where pretrial motion was heard and decided. It might even have to do with whether certain evidence was admitted or a witness was allowed to testify or was prohibited from testifying about something. I'd strongly suggest that in any of those case-specific matters, you do the research uh, work to determine whether your rulings were correct. The good thing is, with respect to a lot of those points, there's plenty of case law out there on motions for new trial. I'd specifically cite, for in your case, the most relevant cases in your written order uh, that relate to that specific uh, trial objection or trial issue. Do you keep your notes from trial? Oh, yeah. 
I keep my notes from trial forever, essentially. What we do when I finish a trial is my handwritten notes um, are scanned into the system along with my staff attorney's handwritten notes who also takes notes during trial. Um, we list them by case number and by case name. And if I ever need those, uh, I use them frequently during the motion for new trial hearings um, because sometimes it's much easier for me to find things in my notes than in the transcript. Uh, and But we use those all the time, and I, I essentially keep them in perpetuity on the computer. You know, I, a lot of you know that I'm a little bit more tech geeky than some, and all of my notes are made on an iPad, but I save them immediately at the end of the trial. They're sort of auto-saved to Dropbox, and I find myself almost always getting them back out when it's time to decide a motion for new trial because I don't remember that witness's name or who was called after who. And so if I'm looking in the transcript, rather than read 300 pages of, um, yes, um, and you know, all the stuff that goes in a transcript, I'm able to go get, it's after this guy, it's after this guy, before this guy. Well, that can tell me within 10 pages of a transcript probably where I need to be. And that's much easier to deal with. I also try really hard to make little sketch notes of any of the cases I may have relied upon in making my decision, even if I did not verbally put them on the record. I try to, but if I overlooked it, I'm writing the the notes of what why I ruled why I denied or granted a motion in lemonade, for example. I'll have those notes right there handy so I can find those cases. Yeah. Similarly, Wade, if I've printed out a case, you know, in, in doing my quick research to uh, make a decision, I'll scan that case into my notes. I'll just go ahead and scan the written, the written case in, in with my written notes. And I take a picture of them and they are already in my notes. Ha ha. So anyway, preparing the order. When I'm about to draft the order, I usually start by reciting those facts we talked about, about the motion itself and who was present, et cetera. And then I go through Jackson v. Virginia. I go through 13th juror. I go through everything individually. If I have an ineffective claim, I usually sort of wrap up with the ineffective. You do the same? Yeah. Uh, Like I said, I I go through that same analysis that you do. Um, I try to make it really clear. And, and also, you need to understand that a lot of times when these motions for new trial are filed, counsel will put in some very broad objections or broad um, citations of error, um, which they'll then abandon. And I think it's really important for you to note which ones they argued, which ones they didn't argue, and whether you feel like that that claim was abandoned. You specifically use the word, right? Yes. Because it's a term of art, and it means something on appeal. It does. So I try to expedite the hearing and the order. I know you do the same. The rules require that you, quote, rule promptly. But as we have uh, learned recently from one of our peers and idols, uh, Judge Sizemore, you remember his third rule? Just rule. Just rule. Thanks very much. That wraps up our, uh, our podcast on Motions for New Trial. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Jim Henneberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Without them, we really could not do this. And thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to edit some of our stupidity and awkwardness. Hey, but nobody can get it all. That's a good point. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council Superior Court judges who allowed us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court judges across Georgia. 
And thanks to our NGAO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else with an acronym or alphabet name. Or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com if you have any praise. And contact someone else with any of your complaints. But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send those comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcasts. Once again, I am Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And thanks for listening. Tane, I guess it's time to bang the gavel on this one. Any last thoughts before we wrap this session up? No, let's just turn it over to the studio audience. And the crowd goes wild. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.